Isaiah chapter 41 today. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Isaiah 41. The title is The Hope-Filled, Fear-Crushing Promises of God. What we're going to do is we're going to look at God's promises today and see that God has graciously given us His promises for our hope and our joy. Now, Apparently, we've already found out that hardly anyone here does resolutions, but at the end of a year, I do think it's good to at least take time and reflect. How would you characterize 2017? Was it a year of joy, a year of sorrow, a year of celebration, a year of anxiety? Do you feel like you grew in your knowledge and your love and your trust of God? Like, how would you characterize 2017? I think it's good, so whether you've done that already or maybe later today, take some time and just think, where have I been? What's happened? How have I grown in 2017? But as we look forward into 2018, what I want us to understand is that God has incredible amounts of hope and joy for us as his people. And we're going to see that in the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus uh, was born. And it was written to God's people before they were taken captive by Babylon. And so it's explaining to them God's judgment that's going to come upon them and explaining to them why they'll be taken to exile, but then also the hope that they have while they are in exile. And just to kind of make a little bit of a connection If you're familiar with the New Testament writing, especially like Peter, Peter will say that we are exiles right now as God's people in this world. We, as God's people, are are aliens and strangers. We're called ambassadors on this earth. Our true home, our true citizenship is with God, ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. So we live under a foreign rule in a foreign land very much as exiles, just as Israel, in a sense, was 700 years prior to Christ coming at the time of Isaiah. They're going to go into exile, and so now God is going to give them hope as they're waiting for His return, as they're waiting for His promises uh, to come true of the sending of the Messiah. And now we are given promises, and these promises we'll see in Isaiah are for us as well. As we wait for Jesus to now come, Ultimately, so that we will live with him in the new heavens and new earth. And what we're going to see is that these promises are meant to crush fear, to remove fear, to remove anxiety, and fill us with hope and joy. They're meant to give us confidence in our God. And so my prayer is as we look at these promises uh, this morning, that we'd be full of joy, that we'd be full of hope, that as we go into 2018, that our faith would be encouraged And that we would boldly go out knowing that we have the very promises of God and they're meant to give us hope, meant to give us joy. That as we live here on this earth, we can be a testimony of Christ to this world. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the first 20 verses of chapter 41. So I encourage you to go ahead and stand. It's a little bit lengthy if you need to take a seat during this, that's okay. But we stand here because we believe God's word comes with the full authority of God, so we do so to honor our God and King. Chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east? 
whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes him like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thrush the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory." When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, the Lord will answer them. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress and the plain and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we pray for wisdom right now as we come to your word. Lord, I pray that we, that we would see the beauty of your word right now. God, help us to see who you are, who we are because of your grace and the mighty, great, wonderful, gracious promises that you have given us. May we see that these promises are just as true today as they were thousands of years ago. God, help us to know that your grace is for us. Help us to know that we are not alone. And now, Lord, may your Spirit give us wisdom as we read in your text, as we study your Word. Strengthen us in our faith that we would live for you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. 
So we're going to look uh, really at three things. Uh, number one, who is our God? Number two, who are we? And, and then number three, what are the promises that God has given us? And so to begin, who is our God? Verse one calls the nations to listen to him. Now the word coastlands, uh, it's used 17 times in Isaiah. It always refers to the Gentiles. So current day, it would be unbelievers in this world. Now notice in verse 1, God calls them to renew their strength. Now we're not spending a lot of time on this right now, um, but when we go through Isaiah one day, it'll be fun to come here. God is calling the Gentiles, the people who don't believe in Him, to renew their strength. This is exactly what God just told Israel that He will do for them. If you look back just, just lines before in verse 31 of chapter 40, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That is written to Israel as God's people saying, you wait on me, your strength will be renewed. Now he's turning to unbelievers, to the nations and saying, look, my promises are for you also if you will believe in me. So there's a lot there, but we can't tackle all that today. Um, and then in verses 2 through 4, we're going to see what God wants them to hear. And he asks a question, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? And notice, God does not say what stirred this person up, but he says who. Who raises up a conqueror who will defeat the nations? Who makes this conqueror powerful? Now at this moment, we have no idea who he's talking about. Now most likely, he's talking about Cyrus, which he'll mention specifically in chapter 44. Um, but it's been thought also it could be Abraham, it could be Joshua. There's other ideas. But at this moment, it doesn't matter because Isaiah doesn't tell us. So he's letting that mystery just hang in there. And then, at the end of verse 4, he says, Who is the one who is called generations from the beginning? So what's he asking? He's asking, is history simply random events? Is everything just cyclical? Does everything just go around and around and around? Is everything simply by chance? Or is there a designer? Is there one who guides and directs all events? Do the events occur by chance? Or is there one who sovereignly rules over all nations, over all kingdoms, and over all things? And at the end of the verse 4, we're given the answer. He says, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am He. Now you might know in, in the New Testament, God calls Himself, and Jesus calls Himself, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That's basically what God has called Himself right here. I am the beginning, I am the end, I am the one who has eternally existed and ruled. Is that your view of God? Do you understand that about God? He has forever ruled as King. There's never been a moment He hasn't ruled. There's never been a moment He has not been all-powerful. Do you know that history, past and present, has always been guided by God? Or maybe a better way to ask that is, do you actually believe that? Some of us might sit here and we might say, yes, I know, I know, God's in control, yes, He's King. And, you know, like, we just kind of know that, but do we believe that? Does that affect and inform the way we actually go about each and every day? Now, some of you might be going, yeah, but does he really control everything? Well, let's just take a few verses and see what Scripture says about God. I took some from the Old Testament, and I think only actually one from the New Testament, but that's okay. 
Psalm 103, verse 19. I think these are up on the screen also. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written them, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before we were born, God had all of our days written down. That is the sovereignty and the power of God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. This comes from a pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, he changes, talking about God, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, says, God is the one who puts kings and removes them. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast in the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. You throw the dice, it looks random, but God is the one controlling even the very spin of the dice. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? So what we have here is our God reigns supreme over everything in this world, from earthquakes and volcanoes all the way to the very lifespan of every single bird. That's our God. What's neat, do you see it? It pictures him as infinitely huge. And most all, well, all other religions, the religions that believe that God is infinitely huge, believe that he's a very distant God. He's so big we cannot know him. But what we're going to see in our text is our God is so big and yet he's imminent. He's so very near to us. There is not any other religion or God that is presented the way the Bible presents our God. He's infinitely huge, in control of all things, and yet present with us, in control of absolutely every single event. This is not a deistic view of God. He's not the time clock where he just winds up the earth, sets it aside, goes on, does his own thing, and never comes back and checks on it. He is a God who is infinitely huge and is involved in every single event at every single moment. We are not ultimately in control, but rather God is. He wants us to know the sun does not rise and set because we wake and we sleep, but it rises and sets at the very word of God. Now, I think it's important. He starts with the description of God because if we have a small view of God, we're going to have a small view of his promises. Think about this. If I said, whatever you need, I will provide for you, you're going to look and go, okay, I know what you make. I, I see what you can do. You can't meet all of my needs because I'm not big enough to be able to do that. And if we have a small view of God, we're going to read his promises and we're not actually going to believe in them. Rather, we will try to seek our security and our strength and our wisdom in something else. And the proof of that is how the nations respond. If you look, verses 5 through 7, we now see the response of the nations. And what do they do? They don't believe in God Therefore, they reject and they rebel against him. So rather than trusting in God, what we see is that they're going to trust in their wisdom and their ingenuity, and they're going to build idols. They're going to trust in their strength. And they build idols, they cover them with gold, and they say, it's good. Anywhere else in Scripture we read those words, it is good? Remember that? Maybe Genesis 1, God speaks things into existence. It is good, 
And now, man, look what I have made. It's good. And then just to make sure it doesn't fall over because it's bad when your idol falls over, they put some nails into it in the ground so it stays strong. Doesn't that sound like a good idol? So what's neat is when you go through the book of Isaiah, it shows the foolishness of idols. It shows the ridiculousness of trusting in something that then you nail down to make sure it doesn't fall over. Now, I don't think, if you do, you can come tell me afterwards. You don't have to raise your hand. I don't think many of us, or any of us, are going to go home, make some carvings of wood, put some gold on them, nail them up in the front or backyard, and fall down and worship them. I don't think many of us in our culture are going to do that. But we do often trust in things other than God, don't we? Sometimes we trust more in our strength. We trust in maybe our job, in our relationships, in our money, in our possessions. We do still struggle with idolatry. And listen, because of sin, we will struggle with this battle of worship every day until Christ returns. We will trust in what we see. We will, will we trust in what we see and what we touch and what we feel and what we make? Or will we trust in the God who has made everything and rules everything you know everything you do reveals who you are trusting do you know that everything you do reveals whether you are trusting in the god who has made all things or you are trusting in the idol that you are nailing to stay upright the way you go to work the way you love your neighbors the way you spend your money the way you spend your time it all reveals whether you are trusting God or not. The way you spend time in, your, in the Word of God. And if you were to look back, 2017, how did you do in the Word of God? Many of you, I know, are just faithful readers in the Word of God. Many of you, I know, struggle with ever reading the Bible. And I'll say, man, I get up early. Now, you know, and I say, I, I get up early. I'm a morning person. Man, I was up like at 4.30 today. And some of you, you hear that and you're like, that is stupid. Now, I get it. 4.30 in the morning... That's a dumb time to wake up. Like, I agree. But I just encourage you, when do you set aside that specific unhindered uh, time to be in the Word? And many of you say, well, I'm not a morning person. Which then I'll say, well, when do you have that time that does not get interrupted? And you say, well, I just can't seem to find it. So get up early. Because you either love your sleep more or you're loving God more. And that may sound like, well, can you really do well, when else are you finding that time that you are setting apart to just study in the very Word of God, to, to come before God and pray? Look at your finances. How do you spend your money? How do you give to the church? Now you give to the church well. In one sense, we can look at our budget and say, we're in the black. That's amazing. But I also encourage you, we don't give money so that we can just hire more staff or build things or do things around here. We ultimately give our money because rather than taking our 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 dollars, whatever you give a month, rather than putting that in our paycheck and, or rather than putting it in our bank account and letting that be a part of our budget so we get to buy more stuff, we're saying, God, I trust in you more than I trust in this money and I know you will supply all the things that I need. So I freely give money to you 
God. It's ultimately an act of worship. All the things that we do, the way we love our neighbors, the way we love our coworkers, the way we engage with people reveals are we trusting in God or are we trusting in ourselves? And what we see is that unbelievers refuse to, to come before God and worship Him. And we as believers, we must understand this, we still struggle with this daily. We will always struggle with this until the point that Christ returns. But if we go to verse 8, God's now going to direct his attention to his people, to who, to who we are, and he's going to help us understand who we are. In verses 8 through 9, we see a description. But you, Israel, my servant. Notice he says, my servant. He says, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend. He says that God has gathered us from the ends of the earth. He is, he is the one who has called us and formed us. He has chosen us. Twice we read he has chosen us. Two things we at least see here. We can see many more, but two things. Number one, uh, well one, we have to ask ourselves, can we actually apply this description to us? Now this is written to Israel, right? Like 2,700 years ago. Does this description apply to us? Servant, chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend. Can we apply that to us as the church today? Because if we're going to be good Bible interpreters, we must correctly apply the Bible. We can't just take any verse and say, well, this is how we apply that. We need to know how do we do that. And so we preached through Galatians this last year. And many of you were here throughout that. And if you remember, we would answer this question in, that, in the book of Galatians. And so let me read two texts for you from Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we come back here. And we see that this text is written to my servant, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham. Well, who's the offspring of Abraham? Ultimately, it is all those who believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham. You've been made a part of the people of God. So when we're in Isaiah, what we're reading is really God's letter to his people, in a sense, the church, those who trust in him, and we're going to see what God says to them, and, and here we're reading about the promises he has for them, and that's why we can take these promises and say, okay, if we also are a part of Abraham, meaning we have believed in Jesus, then we can begin to apply these promises to us as well. So by faith in Jesus, we become offspring of Abraham. The description here of Israel is the description of the church. Secondly, what we need to see is that God's being God's people is all about God's grace. You see that? It's all about God's grace. God is the one who has chosen us. God is the one who has gathered us. God is the one who has called us from the corners. God is the one who has formed us. 
What this means is that we do not become God's people because of our power, our reputation, our wisdom, our checkbook, or the way we look. God didn't choose us to make his team better. Like, you realize that? Like, it's not like him and Satan, and they're like, all right, which one you want? And God's like, oh, I need these people. They're going to make my team better. Like kickball, you know, like when you're back in elementary school, we're all like, okay, who can kick the farthest? Okay, that guy. He can kick really hard, so he's on my team. That's how we do it in elementary school. That's not how God does it. In fact, at times we might say, it seems like he chose sometimes the least of these and brought them onto his team. We are God's people because of his grace. God has obligated himself because he loves us. Hear this. God sees all of our rebelliousness. He sees our anger and our rage and our impatience. He hears the words we speak and the words we don't speak. And in spite of all that, he chooses to bestow his grace on us, to love us, to transform us into his image, that we would live with him forever. Do you know that is who we are? We are a people chosen by God's grace. Not because of, of the things that we have, not because of what we offer, because compared to God, we have nothing. And yet God chooses to freely bestow His grace upon us and to love us. So if we recap, God's all-powerful, rules everything, we're His people by His grace. And now He's going to say, these are my promises for you. These are the promises that I give to the people whom I have chosen. These are my gracious promises to my gracious people that I have chosen. And so what are the promises? First thing we see, God's promises are meant to have an effect on us. Look at verse 10. What are the first words of verse 10? You can say them. Go ahead. Okay, like one person read. Was that Ben? Was that my wife? Oh, my wife has her Bible open. What does it say, people? There you go. See, you guys all have those things in front of you called Bibles. Fear not. I really thought it was Ben. No. God's promises are meant to have an effect on us. In fact, these words are repeated three times in the text. Fear not, fear not, fear not. So what's the effect God's promises are supposed to have on us? Well, interaction. Yeah, we don't fear, right? We don't have anxiety. We're not full of fear in this world going, well, what's going to happen? How is this going to happen? How is this going to get taken care of? And all the things that take place because realistically, there's a lot of things that can cause anxiety and fear in this life, right? Do you ever struggle with anxiety and fear? Do you ever find that those things take away your hope and your joy? So God says, look, don't fear because I have promises for you. So he gives us these promises for our joy, for our hope, to crush the fears that so often want to plague us. So we can't glaze over this. God has given us promises to crush fear. But if we don't trust in these promises, we will be full of fear and anxiety. And what I find is that there's a lot of Christians running around with fear and anxiety. You say, well, well, how can that happen? If God says, I have these promises for you, then why do we still experience that? Well, maybe think of it like this. Imagine you've received this amazing inheritance worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it's all put in your bank account. You have full access to it anytime you come to it. 
and yet you still struggle with buying clothes and you still struggle with buying food because you never actually access the bank account. God has given you all his promises. He says all you have to do is come and receive them. They're here for you. But rather than come trusting in God, coming into his word where we understand what these promises are, rather than coming to him in prayer, we, we continually act as though we're spiritual paupers. And I think that happens at times. And so my prayer is as we go into 2018, let's know who our God is, who we are. He's mighty and powerful. He's chosen us by grace. And he gives us these gracious promises so we would be full of hope and joy. Next, we see that God's promises are conditional. Do you know that? God's promises are conditional? They are. They're conditional on being God's people. He's writing to his people, to Abraham's offspring, to those whom he has chosen, to those he has gathered. So if you are here right now and you have believed in Jesus Christ, you know that you're a child of God, no, these promises are for you. The condition has been met that God has supplied by his grace. And if you are here and you're saying, I haven't believed in God, then know that if you trust in Jesus Christ today, that these promises are yours today in Jesus Christ. So come to him and experience the joy of these promises. And in verse 10, we are told at least three promises that God gives us. God promises us his presence, his power, and his provision. His presence, his power, his provision. Do you notice you have blanks today? I haven't given you blanks in like a year, I don't think. I was so happy. I was like, look, they have blanks. It's the small things that give me joy. Um, And you think I'm kidding. Uh, Presence, I am with you. Power, I will strengthen you. Provision, I will up. Hold you. Those are the very things that he says. He's promising us his presence, his power, and his provision. Now let's remember the context of this letter. It's written to Israel. The northern kingdom has already been defeated. They're actually defeated by Assyria in about 722 B.C. They're scattered everywhere. Now the southern kingdom, Judah, in about 100 years, will be defeated by Babylon. They're going to be taken captive. And most likely, they're the primary recipients of this letter. They're going to be in exile reading this letter. And they're going to see, God says, I am with you, I will strengthen you, and I will uphold you. And they're going to look at everything around them, and they're going to say, okay, Jerusalem is destroyed. We are no longer living in the promised land. We're under a foreign rule. Does this look like it's true? you got to wrestle with that, right? Today... God says, I am with you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you. And some of you, you look at your life and you say, look, I have no idea how God is with me. I don't see him strengthening me. I don't see him providing for me. God is calling us to direct our gaze from the things that we see on earth and directing our gaze to him who's up in heaven. If you remember, Colossians chapter 3 starts this way. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things, but where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. whole idea is we need to keep our eyes on the King. And we can be distracted by the things that we see on this earth. 
But when we live by faith, we're believing in the things not seen. Now that doesn't mean faith is illogical. We could walk through and show in the Old Testament how God has proven His existence, how God has provided for His people. And in fact, if you read verse 20, it says in chapter 41, He does all these things that they may see and know. So He gives these promises for the purpose of us actually seeing and knowing that He is God and He does provide for us. So these promises are not meant to be an illogical step of faith, but they're meant to be the very step of faith because of who God has proven Himself to be through His Word and continues to prove Himself every single day through the sustaining of this earth and by giving us His Holy Spirit and the sending of Jesus Christ at the cross. Amen indeed. And so we could look at history and we could see how God proves himself, how God regularly shows his presence, his power and provision. We could do that and we could go through the Old Testament and that'd be a lot of fun and we'll kind of do that because next week we're going to start the book of Daniel and we'll see how God works and we'll see his presence, we'll see his power and we'll see his provision all throughout the book of Daniel. But ultimately what we know is that God fulfills these promises in sending his son Jesus Christ at the cross. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise that God gives us. Think about it. The, the presence of God. Jesus actually comes to earth. Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, comes to earth to dwell with man. You see how that fulfills presence? And, and when Jesus is going up, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what does verse 20 say? And lo, I am behold with you, I am behold with you to the very end of the age. He says, I give you my spirit who will be with you at every single moment. You are never alone. Jesus comes as the, act, as the ultimate fulfillment of God's presence. Who guarantees that one day we will live in the presence of God. Jesus comes as the ultimate display of God's power, does he not? Not only does he come, he walks on water, he rises the, raises the dead, he makes the lame to walk, the blind to see. But what does he do? He dies on a cross, three days later, rises victorious over sin, death, and Satan, right? The ultimate display of God's power, defeating the very enemies of God, providing redemption for man. And Jesus is our ultimate provision. Does he not come as our substitutionary sacrifice? Listen, the Bible clearly says, apart from God's grace in Jesus, we stand underneath the wrath of God. And we have no hope of coming out from underneath that. And because of that, we will all suffer the wrath for eternity. But Jesus comes and says, no, I'll stand in your place. I'll take the wrath of God that you should receive for eternity, and I will suffer that on the cross so that you can have righteousness, so that you can be forgiven. Jesus is God's ultimate provision for us. And if you know Romans 8.32, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So think about it. What that text is saying is God did the infinite hard thing of giving his son Jesus. And if he does that, the infinitely hard thing, will he not now meet all of our needs 
on a day-to-day basis. If he did the infinitely hard, will he not do the small things like providing for us, being with us, giving us strength in our day-to-day lives? Look, when we look at the cross, we see all of God's promises fulfilled and we have the guarantee they will continue to be fulfilled in our lives every single day. So every time you come to the Word, you're reminded of the cross. And when you're reminded of the cross, you're reminded God keeps His promises. And at the center of it is the cross, which guarantees all the promises come true. And because He has met them in Christ, we know that He will continue to fulfill these promises in our lives every single day. And so when we look at verses 11 through 20, he gives us three pictures of what it looks like for this promise or these promises to be fulfilled. We're going to go through just these three pictures. Picture number one, verses 11 through 12, God destroys all of our enemies. If you look, verse 11, we see those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. Verse 12, you shall seek those who contend with you. You shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. We've already learned in verses 2 through 4, God rules over everything. He's the one who appoints kings. He's the one who removes kings. And what we see is that God uses his power to overcome all of our enemies which means there is nothing that can stand against us in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean we will not experience sickness, will not experience disease, difficulties, or even death. A prosperity gospel right here would say, and because of this, you will have great life. You will have no sickness. Everything you want is going to come true, and you'll have lots of money. That's the prosperity gospel. But that's not what the text is leading us to understand. What we know is that his people are in exile at this moment. But this promise is meant to give them hope as they're in exile. So it doesn't, what it means is that because God's presence is with us and he will destroy all of our enemies, that we will never be alone. We will never be separated from God. Look at verse 13. God is the one who holds our right hand. Do you know that? At every moment, God is the one ultimately holding you, sustaining you. What's the worst thing that can happen here on this earth? What's the worst threat that the world has to offer? It says, I'll kill you, right? I'll end your life. That's the worst threat the world can come up with. And what does Paul say in Philippians 1 in response to that? Death is gain. You get that? All enemies have been destroyed. Death is no longer a threat. Paul says, you want to kill me? Great, I'll go be with God. You want to leave me? Great, I'll preach God. Live is Christ, death is gain. Doesn't matter. And so as Christians, listen. There is nothing on this earth that can come against you, that can separate you from the presence of God. There is nothing on this earth that can remove you from the very presence of God and can change your identity in God. If you are Christ, you are His because He's chosen you, and His grace preserves you and sustains you, and there is nothing you need to fear, not even death. Do you see how God's promises are meant to fill the Israel with hope and to fill us with hope today we can be bold in Christ because what threatens us there's nothing that threatens us because in Christ all of our enemies have been defeated so as we go into 2018 know 
There's nothing that can stand against you. There's nothing that can defeat you. There's nothing in this world that can change your identity in God because God has chosen you by his grace. Picture number two, God makes us into a mighty instrument. I love this one. This one, this would be fun just to preach this text right here. Begins with fear not. So it's the last time he says fear not in this text. And who doesn't need to fear? You worm Jacob. Don't you love that? No, you don't love that. Like, how does God just now describe his people? You're a worm. Isn't that a cool way to start 2018? All right. Everyone, just write down on your mirror every day you wake up, I'm a worm. It's like low expectations, right? Everything gets better from there. But think about it. Look at verses 15 and 16. This worm becomes a threshing sledge so incredibly powerful it levels mountains. And then what happens? This worm, because he says, you, you shall winnow them, it blows them away like dust. Now, what's the point of this text? Is it to make us as Christians go, man, I'm a worm. I'm a really powerful worm. Look at all the things I'm going to do. And like, man, I'm awesome. Is that the point of the text? If you think that's the point, you're wrong. The point is, you are small. In fact, in, flip, in Psalm 22, uh, the psalmist will, will say he's a worm. And it means he's less than a man. He's something despised by all. So being called a worm is, is not a compliment. It's rather showing us our helplessness, showing us our desperate need for God. And look, I'll say this. If you don't see yourself as a worm, then you don't see your, your need for God. You understand that? If you don't see yourself as a worm, then you don't see your need for God. The Bible says we're sinful and we're rebellious. And, and when we come to know Christ, you know this, I know this, sin doesn't just magically disappear. Like, do you ever find when you came to know Christ, you never struggle with sin anymore? Like, it just doesn't happen, right? We know we're victorious over sin. We know we have the Spirit that we can overcome sin. But Paul says in Romans 7, when he's talking about his life, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You ever have that happen? I don't want to be impatient. I don't want to be angry with my children. And then I'm impatient and I'm angry with my children. Do you ever find that? I do. Like every day. Like I struggle with this sin. And we will continue to struggle with sin until the day that Christ returns. And so when we come to the Word, what we're given is a description of who we are like we have in verses 8 and 9 where it tells us we are chosen. We're the offspring of Abraham. We're God's servant, meaning He's chosen us to serve Him and to be with Him. We see in the New Testament, we're adopted to be in His family. He's given us every spiritual blessing. We have amazing descriptions like that, right? We love those ones. But we have to hold those also with the description of being a worm. Meaning, as we grow in our knowledge for God, yes, I'm going to grow in my understanding of all the riches that I have in Christ, but I'm also going to continue to grow in my hatred of sin. And the more I see God, the more I'm also going to see my own sin and how desperate I need God's grace. And so he gives us this text saying, you're a worm, but I can use you. 
in such amazing and mighty ways. Not pointing to our strength, but ultimately pointing to whose strength? To God's strength. God's power. Hear this. You are not strong enough to change your wife, your husband, your children. You are not strong enough to change your circumstances at work. You are not strong enough to resist temptation and lust. You are not strong enough to overcome shame and guilt and anxiety. You cannot do it. Give up now if that's your goal. 2018, I'm not going to lust anymore because I'm strong enough to do it. I choose not to do it. I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to, you can make your list and say, I'm just not going to do this anymore because I just don't want to. You're going to fail tomorrow. Okay? But God says, I have given you my strength. It's not by your strength. It's by God's strength that we live each and every day. That we can overcome lust. That we can overcome anger and impatience and rage and all the things that we still experience on this side of heaven. It's through the strength of God mountains are made into dust. So just think, what in your life appears as a mountain right now? Is it a job? Is it a vehicle? Is it, is it your body? It's aging and it hurts? I went to the gym this week. I haven't gone to the gym for a while. Everything hurts. Like everything hurts this week. You guys went skiing. I bet you guys hurt. Like everything hurts. I can't wait for that day to stop. But like, what, is, what feels like a mountain to you? Listen, you're not going to overcome that mountain. Not in your strength. But God says, I have all the strength you need. Come to me. Trust in me. I will preserve you. I will strengthen you. And I will help you. And I will hold your right hand. Look, if you look at things in your life apart from God's grace, you will feel crushed. You cannot carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You can't. You might sit there and think, I really want my children to know Jesus. I'm going to have Bible time with them every day. You can't save your children. Don't carry that weight. Trust in God to carry that weight. Whatever the situation is, if you're trying to carry it your own, it will crush you. Because you can't do it. You're not made to do it. But God says, I will carry you. And I will provide all the strength you need. Picture number three. God will abundantly provide for you. I love this one. We see it in verses 17, 18, and 19. These verses, we see that God loves to answer prayer. And what he does, when we're thirsty, he turns the desert into an oasis. Isn't that cool? Verse 19. All right, let's see. Um, he says, verse 18, I will make the wilderness a pool of water. You know that desert? It's a beach now. There's a big water. And he's like, oh, you need some shade? Well, verse 19, I'll put the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, the cypress, the pine. I'll give you shade. I'll meet every need you have, is what God says. Now think about it. You're a desert people. What do you need? You need water. You need shade. And God says, I will meet your every need, and I will do so in absolute abundance. Isn't that incredible? That's where ultimately does that in Christ, right? He meets all of our needs in Christ. And because he does so in Christ, we know. Do you struggle with patience? That God will supply that patience. Do you struggle with anger? God will help give you that peace in your life. Do you struggle with finances and how to spend? 
God will help. God will provide people to help give you understanding. Whatever it is that you're needing and that you're wrestling with, God promises to help. Now, He might answer differently than what we think, but He loves to answer. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, we read that He says, we who are who are sinful, we who are, are wicked, meaning just we're sinful people, we love to give good gifts, right? And he says, if we, who are sinful people, love to give good gifts, how much more does our perfect heavenly Father love to give good gifts? When we come to Him in prayer, when we come to Him in faith, He loves to answer us. We're coming into a new year. We can either carry the weight of all the things that we've been carrying, or we can begin trusting in God that He's going to carry them, that He's going to provide His strength, that He'll be with us. He'll meet our every single need. Listen, we, we, have, we have a goal. Uh, in five years, we want to see um, a church planted. We want to see 100 people baptized. We want to see us grow in attendance. Not so we just become a bigger church, but because disciples are being made. We want to see things happen. That's not going to be because of our strength and our power. It's totally going to be as we trust in these promises of God. And it's not going to be just me trusting in them. It's going to be as we come together and trust in God alone. And in your family, I encourage you, as you wrestle with things in your family, how are you coming together to trust in God? When you're looking at a vehicle, whether you're looking at a house, whether you're looking at whatever it is in the future, saying, how are we going to do this? How are we going to accomplish this? What I encourage first, let's just start trusting in God, presenting that request before God, maybe bringing in others to help pray for us. But what we have here is a God who says, I will answer. And I've given you these promises that you do not need to have fear, but you can be full of hope and you can be full of joy. And so when we are struggling with fear, when we're struggling with anxiety, an important thing to do is come back to the word how am I not trusting in God's promise right now? And you've got to think about that. When we start struggling with sin, we're doing so because we're not believing about something in God. And one of the things I don't think we do very well, I say we as in me and all of us as Christians in general, I don't think we, we really analyze our thoughts and our motives very well. But if we want to begin overcoming sin, why am I struggling to believe that God is good? Why am I struggling to believe that he's powerful? Why am I struggling in believing that, he is ap- that he's actually with me right now? What is there that I'm wrestling with? And I encourage you, that's why we need one another. That's why we need table groups. That's why we need to meet with people individually and just have people pray for us and wrestle with things in our lives. We need to get other sets of eyes looking at us to help us see sometimes what we don't see because Sin is blinding, and often the things I don't see are the sin in my very life. I need you to help point those out. You need me. You need others to help point those out in your life. But God promises us. He, well, he gives us promises that we'd have hope and joy. Not so we'd have a better life, bigger houses, bigger bank accounts. That's not the point. But that in whatever condition we live in, 
we will have fullness of joy. And that's the promise God gives us. And what we're going to see uh, as we go forward now into Daniel in the next coming weeks, Daniel and, and Israel, they go into Babylon. And yet they continue to trust in God. And what we're going to see is how God's power is there. His presence is there. His provision meets them at every single moment. While it looks like the God of Israel has been defeated, what we see is the God of Israel reigns very much all throughout the book of Daniel. And we will see that as we go through and we will understand how he reigns in our lives very much today and in this world. So I hope you see these promises. These promises are all throughout scripture. And the exclamation point is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt, does God really provide? Is he really with me? Does he really give strength? Go to the cross. You'll see his power, you'll see his provision, and you'll see his presence there. Because of that, we are guaranteed that all of his promises come true for us. So we're going to pray, and we're going to come, and we're going to take... Uh, the elements and so I'll ask the men to come forward after we pray our father God you are king and I know that that I don't always act like your king or think that you're king there are times that I forget your promises or I refuse to believe your promises and I'm guessing that that same mindset is somewhat similar here with the rest of the people at times. But God, I pray by the power of your spirit, God, help us to trust in your promises. Help us to be a people of your word. That we would know your word. Because in your word, you show us your promises. And may your promises be ever so beautiful to us because ultimately, they reveal to us you. They reveal to us your love and your grace for us. They point us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your power, your presence, and your provision. God, we see that those things have been given to us for our hope. So that God, no matter what, as we go into 2018, whether there are many tears in 2018, whether there's great sorrow, we know that in spite of tears and sorrow, there is a joy and a peace that you give, but it only comes as we see, God, that you reign and that your promises are for us. And God, help us to see that. Help us to know that. God, we love you. In your wonderful name, Jesus Christ, amen.